Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have some awesome guests. Christy Chung and Whitley Yi are the co-founders of the AI Collective. In this episode, we talk about what are the best uses of AI in healthcare right now? What is AI, and will it replace clinicians? Why the black box nature of AI makes it problematic in healthcare? And what is the future of AI? This is an amazing episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, Whitley and Christy, how are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, so good, good. I'm really excited about this episode. Um, as people that know me, I love AI. I also fear it, but I'm hoping that you. Get... <laughs> I'm hoping we can kind of talk about both 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 sides of the coin on this one. But yeah, if you guys don't mind starting a little bit about your background, kind of how you guys got to where you got to. Yeah, absolutely. Christy, do you want to take it off? Go for it. Go for it. So um, I guess I can give a little, yeah, a little background about my sort of roundabout uh, path. I went to pharmacy school in Colorado and I initially was started getting, was very interested in digital health and informatics coming um, out of pharmacy school and wanting to focus on those, those kind of projects and um, it was really like during initial residency training that I started getting really interested in in AI because you would you would hear all of these all these like you know crazy claims and um, you know articles that were just talking about like the kind of the ridiculous things that AI could do and I wanted to know like okay well is this true and like is there a way to like verify it's true and how do you approach this from a clinician perspective like what is this mean to me or mean to anybody when they're actually in direct patient care um, with patients. And so that just really started a, a journey of just digging in and kind of teaching, just teaching myself and Christy can <laughs> attest to that as well. You know, there's just not a lot of resources for clinicians out there when it comes to AI. And I think that was the biggest challenge um, that we faced. But I've been, you know, did you learn? I've had the opportunity to do a few different AI projects, um, including you know some NLP competitions that have been exciting. And, and currently, my role right now, and they're not directly AI related. Work with a digital health startup that is AI um, AI focused, but I work really on the actual like human side of it um, and how humans interact and um, really interact with the AI based analytics engine with the app. And as for me, um, I graduated from the university of British Columbia. So on the West coast in Vancouver in Canada, I became really interested in digital health through attending healthcare hackathons actually as a first year student. And that's really what spurred my interest into the health tech innovation ecosystem. 
fast forward to graduation, I actually went into the pharmaceutical and biotech industry through a fellowship in medical. Um, now I've continued to explore the digital health ecosystem, but as I've been observing and as I've been learning, I guess what brought Willie and I together was really just, we were so confused, like where to start, you know, as clinicians, how do you learn about such a technical realm? And as we were alluding to earlier, earlier, like we're still learning as well. So um, that's what brought us together. We're trying to demystify it for one another and demystify it for our clinician colleagues at the same time. Um, and so, yeah, now I work in the pharmaceutical industry. I was in medical affairs both in head office and in the field. And then now um, I lead digital innovation and transformation for our specialty or care organization. And I think the applications of AI in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry is also very fascinating. Yeah, no, thank you guys for doing that. But um, I'd also kind of, so kind of going down the path of learning, you guys kind of started, you guys are kind of creating that, I guess, encyclopedia of knowledge for clinicians to start. <laughs> you guys want talking a little bit about that? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so really, as Christy mentioned, it really came about us trying to figure out, you know, where to get started when it comes to learning about AI, um, especially AI within healthcare. And there weren't really a lot of resources out there. And so we began, started, you know, gathering and aggregating this, yeah. these resources. We thought, you know, if this is, if this is something that we can't find, you know, this is obviously a need out there that others have as well. And so we wanted to try to, as you know, Christy mentioned, really demystify it and make it kind of as simple as possible, but also help relate it to things that as clinicians, you would already have learned to be familiar with, you know, like a lot of these, these concepts, I think can relate back to principles and concepts that you learned in evidence-based medicine, but now it's just taking it a step farther and, you know, further and understanding, okay, here is how AI plays into that and how you can take, you know, foundation that you already know and relate it to learning about AI concepts and foundations. Exactly. And I think it's been a learning process for us. Like right at the beginning, it was really us jotting down big headers or subject areas within AI and seeing like, you know, what research we could find. And then between the two of us figuring out how we can make this information digestible for other healthcare students and professionals, right? Because it's not necessarily that there's not a lot of research in AI out there. If you Google, there's certainly a lot of research, but how is it truly applicable in a meaningful way for a clinician like ourselves? And how can we get that into bite-sized content that is understandable um, to you know an audience that doesn't have that technical background like ourselves? Yeah, and I can, from personal experience, it's, you know, what reading your guys, what you guys wrote um, has been really helpful for me to kind of get that baseline knowledge. So, no, thank you very much for that. And I know you guys have helped a lot of different people. I know you guys have, um, I forgot his name, but he kind of wrote his journey into, I guess, digital health kind of. Um, but so it's amazing what you guys are doing. And, yeah. and, uh, and you guys also started a podcast as well. We're in the works. Um, we basically really started off our content in written format. Again, like before it was just jotted down on this huge long Google Docs document. And our first foray into content creation, we were really just creating like PDF primers of topics in AI. And of course, 
we've completely transitioned out of that to make it into a website um, that people can visit again in that bite-sized digestible format instead of the pages and pages of information that we first started off with. And then now it's repackaging some of that information into audio format, making a bit more informal, conversational, and we're experimenting. So if anyone in the audience has, you know, feedback suggestions, we're essentially trying to take concepts that we've already written about, talk about it in conversational format, but then also begin to layer in like new publications, new articles, and relate that to some of the topics we've already written about. And then we'll play back and forth between the written and the audio format. So experimenting as we go. Amen. I still have no idea what I'm doing. So um, yeah, no. And so what is the name of the podcast and your website? We never actually mentioned it, did we? Yeah, well, the, the website is AI Collective at AICollective.co. And Christy, what is the podcast is similarly named. Um, we have the audio files available on our website, um, but it's also searchable through Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, definitely check it out, guys. It's uh, pretty informative. But let's not bury the lead. It's what we're all thinking of as clinicians. Is AI going to replace us? And obviously, I'm saying that a little tongue-in-cheek. I don't, AI won't replace us, but maybe we can go into, kind of, you kind of mentioned, you know, when you guys were starting, uh, you were reading about AI and all these wild claims that people make about AI. And, you know, once you kind of really understand it, you kind of understand the capabilities of AI and, you know, doesn't really always match exactly what the claims are. But what what is the best use of AI in healthcare, in your opinion, right now? I mean, if we, th if we think about AI kind of in its sort of broad use cases, right, especially within healthcare, you, you have both the diagnostic side, right? It's using AI to help diagnose, and those are really classification problems. It's using AI to help identify something that we, that we, could, we could label. And, and then you have your risk stratification, using AI to help with, with triage and risk stratification. And then the other big you know, buckets would be treatment recommendations, it would actually be like recommend recommendation systems. And then you look at automating like different automation tools and more admin features. And then I think of like data collection using AI, using AI to actually gather new data endpoints. And so as we look across like our five sort of broad buckets, if you will, I mean, I think AI has already shown a ton of progress on the diagnostic side for sure since we already have you know autonomous algorithms that can diagnose diabetic retinopathy for instance and we've seen huge progress in radiology and so i think that that is going to continue to be you know huge area of growth for ai but it's when you start looking on like treatment recommendation side like what's the right medication for someone to take what's the optimum you know treatment pathway that's just a completely different problem for AI to solve. It's not the same as a classification problem. And that's where I think we still, I mean, that's where I think the capabilities of AI are still overhyped a bit because we don't really see the, we're not, we don't really see the true gains there, if you will. Um, and there's been a lot of work in this area, but this is where I think, you know, AI is still has a long way to go and we haven't really 
seeing the big leap or progress there that we would need, I think, to be able to trust it. Yeah, and just to kind of tack on to that point, like Whitley and I have had discussions and we've done some digging, you know, of course, primarily into the pharmacy space. And that's where a lot of the hype, uh, well, a lot of the information is still lacking or inconsistent when it comes to like data coming from medications. Um, and so when the data is inconsistent, it's also hard for us to really, you know, make conclusions surrounding that. Um, what I will add, just because it's kind of my background is more so in the pharmaceutical and biotech space, I think where we're seeing a lot of applications of AI take off primarily in the R&D, the clinical trial space. So whether that's in drug design, drug discovery, um, drug screening, also interestingly, drug repurposing. So for either approved or not approved drugs, seeing where it could make a difference or an impact in other areas not thought of before. And then also in really clinical trial recruitment um, and matching patients to the appropriate clinical trials. And then lastly, in the commercial space to just improve kind of the way we engage, you know, the healthcare community, patients, different healthcare professionals. So those are kind of the big bucket areas too that we see in this sector. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, and that's why I tell people, there's a lot of places where AI can be really helpful in healthcare. And everything you guys mentioned, it's like an augmentation of the clinical workflow, right? It's not replacing the clinician, it's just augmenting us. And that's one thing I always say is like, augment, not replace. That's kind of where AI is right now. Maybe, I don't know when, it's probably not gonna happen in our lifetime, in my opinion, that'll replace us, but uh, but it is interesting. There's just so many ways where AI is. Maybe that's another thing we can talk about is what is AI versus what is not. So there's like a lot of people that tout like a decision tree as AI, you know, like is that AI or is AI something, I guess I'll let you guys explain, what is AI specifically? <laughs> that's, a, that's such a great question. I, you know, when you first, like when I first started, you know, really getting into the literature, you would find that, you know, people, you, most of the time when AI was mentioned, it was, it was referring more to deep, more so to deep learning techniques, right? And then as it became a buzzword, suddenly everybody was using AI and you would have a, you know, simple, you know, decision tree that was sudden, you know, that was being counted as an, an AI program. And so, I mean, so technically like, because the definition of AI is so broad, almost anything can fall under it, like anything that, you know, mimics human intelligence. And as I think our definition of intelligence changes, then our definition of AI changes. But in this case, you know, even simple, you know, rules-based logic technically falls under the definition of AI, I guess, in the broadest sense. But I personally, usually whenever I'm looking at, think, innovative applications, I don't, I'm usually really just looking at deep learning specifically. So utilizing, you know, things like neural, deep neural networks, for instance, and things that will fall more so under the, you know, traditional machine learning definition versus the broader like AI umbrella. And so I think, you know, most commonly, just a common everyday vernacular that I think usually deep learning is what most people are kind of referring to when they think about AI. And that's kind of what what I typically tend to associate most with AI. Yeah. Okay. 
No, no, no. I was just going to say it's like, it is funny because especially when you're talking to, you know, vendors or, or other, like everyone's trying to market themselves as an AI company now. And sometimes even like, I'm getting confused. I'm like, you know, what is my definition of AI and what, what is, what are the experts definition of AI? But, um, Whitley captured it. Yeah, no, it's, it, I mean, it can get confusing, right? Like, I think it also holds back AI a little bit because you have like AI things that are not necessarily AI and it's just confusing everyone. And then when somebody actually comes out with like an AI model, it's just like everything is kind of lumped into one thing. And it's just like, I mean, I understand why companies are doing because it's a buzzword. I mean, over during the pandemic, everyone was an AI company and they were getting yeah. lots of money thrown at them. So honestly, if I was in this space at the time, I probably would have been like, oh yeah, we're an AI company. But um, it's not the, what's the, what do they say? It's not the, the nature of the rule. It wasn't like the, you know, whatever. Uh, but so with deep learning, so you mentioned neural networks and such. So what is a neural network? So neural network is a specific technique of machine learning. And the, the way I usually kind of describe it is, I mean, ultimately it's, it's meant to mimic our own, you know, neurology within our brain and our own neural pathways. And so you build, you have your little computational neurons that are similar to our biological neurons. The idea that you can put all of these computational neurons together in complex networks, and they can be able to recognize and recognize nonlinear patterns. And so you could, you suddenly have the ability to really be able to capture what we, you know, what we consider more um, tacit knowledge, you know, things that you may not be able to explicitly create an easy rule around, uh, around, for instance. So like, if, you know, if you're trying to create something to recognize sarcasm, right, you can't, there's no like universal set of rules for yeah. that say, okay, if you use these words, this is a sarcastic statement, mm. or if you say these words in this exact way, it's sarcastic. But when you then, you know, put your deep neural network together, then you can actually feed it data and feed it labeled data, and it can begin to recognize that, even without you explicitly knowing how it recognizes it, per se. So you tell it what you want the outcome to be, and it figures out how to map the pathway in between the input and the output. We, um, we kind of talked about this subject matter to, in certain like lectures, guest lectures, and we, there, there is this seemingly very complex diagram of a bunch of neurons just all mapped up, mapped out. Um, but like Whitley said, it's really mimicking kind of the biological neurons and how they fire action potentials in our brain, how they kind of synthesize information through multiple steps to arrive at a certain prediction or outcome. Um, and we, we can absolutely share kind of these diagrams and or papers with the audience if they'd like. Yeah, that'd be amazing. I can link that in the show notes below. But um, so the other thing about deep learning and the way it works is I've read and I've actually been told by people in the space is they you don't really aren't we don't really know how the computer is learning. It's not we tell it, we give it input, we give it an input, and then something happens, we don't know yet, and then an output happens. Is that true? And then 
how do you build trust with a system like that? Is that something you think that's holding back these kind of applications in healthcare? Oh, absolutely. Huge topic. <laughs> I yeah, the, any, anything basically where you have more than one layer, anything deeper yeah. than one layer, it's then considered black box. There are techniques to try to really help us understand how one of these deep learning networks or um, how it's making its decision. But again, anything, any of those methodologies are us just really guessing. Like there is not a way for us to go in and really understand, okay, exactly what is this AI model learning and how can I ensure it's learning the right thing? I mean, the one thing we know for sure is that AI will always take shortcuts, no matter what. <laughs> and you have to set up the problem so explicitly to try to figure out, okay, where, where is the one thing that this model may intentionally, you know, may learn that I don't want it to learn because it's drawing a shortcut and just figuring out the easier way to get to the output. And so it becomes like, it does become very challenging and we, we really need more tools around it really to be able to validate these models. And I think it also depends on like the risk of the problem. Like if we have, we're using this for high risk scenarios where if it makes a mistake, you know, people can be harmed. There is larger, you know, large risk for harm. Then I think that's what we have to be very careful about how we implement them, which is what, you know, why we also have some of the very, you know, much more stricter laws in other countries outside the U S that doesn't, you know, that you're not even really allowed to use deep learning models for healthcare decision-making because you're not able to explain how it makes the decisions that it does. And just to borrow an example that Whitley and I had talked about, and Whitley, correct me if I'm wrong, where I kind of misspeak about this example, but there was a startup that was trying to pr um, predict, you know, presence of an upper respiratory tract infection through chest x-rays. And, you know, through loading in lots of imaging data, um, it ended up being very accurate when they tested on those. Now, the ultimately what they found out was that they weren't interpreting based on, you know, areas around the chest. They were really predicting based on whether there was an annotation on that x-ray or not. So clinical notes, they associated that with a positive sign of an infection. And of course, as we know, that's not the telling sign. You really want to look at the areas of fluid in the lungs, for example. And so, you know, we run into these um, into these uh, inaccuracies. And if you were to replicate that model, or, or if you were to transfer that model and put it in a different environment where clinicians notes are not on the x-ray itself, then, you know, it won't work at all. So um, it's very important that we're wary of how these models are being trained. Are they being trained on like diverse sets of data across different environments and scenarios too? Yeah. And that's, yeah, thanks, Christy. That's a that's a great example. Um, another thing we have to think about is just how incomplete healthcare data is in general. So a lot of times, what AI is learning, especially when you're looking at EHR data, for instance, is AI is really learning about the clinician practices and not actually anything intrinsic about the patient itself. So you know, depending on what labs are ordered 
are not ordered. It may end up basing most of its predictions based off that versus like what the actual lab values are. And so if you don't really know which factors are weighing most heavily in what the ultimate output is, then any time that you have any like workflow or policy or procedure update in a hospital or you have a formulary change, suddenly you're in your environment is, is now different from the one in which the model originally learned. And so you have to then constantly be re-auditing and validating and updating your models because most of these models work really well if you are in a highly controlled static environment that doesn't change very much. But as we know, like healthcare changes all the time and practices constantly become, you know, reversed. And, you know, one thing that was recommended at one point is suddenly not recommended. And these are all things that can throw, you know, model accuracy off for sure. Yeah, and I think that's kind of like the message that we try to give in kind of our work too, that data really needs to be um, looked at very carefully. And again, looked at whether it's representative of the population that those predictions are intended for. I was watching, um, I think it was like an AI webinar from the World Economic Forum the other day. And I forget the statistic, but they were talking about the number of people in this world who don't even have access to internet. So all of their data we've never seen before. They've never been fed into any model or others. So whatever predictions are being made right now in healthcare, all of that, it's, we're missing a whole chunk of data from that population too. And, you know, that could skew some of the results that we're seeing. Yeah. And that's actually what's going to be my next kind of topic kind of going down is the data route, but you're absolutely right. Like, you know, a lot of people advocate for AI and these models to be used in underserved areas, right? Like, Hey, that's an right. easy way to do it. But like you mentioned, their data is incomplete. So right now healthcare has a bias. There's people, we all have our own biases and there's certain biases that are, that, that perpetuate throughout healthcare. There's a bunch of topics. We don't really need to get into them, but when you have an AI model and you're giving it that kind of data that's skewed in one direction, now you have bias at scale that we're not even aware of, right? We're not even looking at the patient in the eye and be like, hey, that doesn't make sense. Now it's just automated bias. And that's kind of, and like people like, oh, you know, people like poo poo it, whatever, but it's true. It, it will happen if, we, if we're not aware of it. Yeah, and I think it's sometimes like, and I don't think we're at that state, but it's almost as if when we're looking at a problem, not to go to AI, as like the first tool, like we, we can still trust our own intelligence and instincts, right? Like if we're, if we're fully capable of making clinical decisions um, and whatever scenario we're talking about, but just seeing, you know, how we can come into play where we can potentially leverage AI as a tool to support some of our decision-making processes or support synthesis of data, pattern recognition, what have you, um, but not to go to AI as like the first thing um, to help us in solving that problem. Yeah, no. Um, and then the other thing you kind of mentioned was kind of the deep neural network part where AI should not be used for complex clinical algorithms because A, we don't know how it's kind of coming to that point. And then like you mentioned, it's kind of looking at the clinical practice, not necessarily the patient itself. 
and that kind of goes back to the initial question that I kind of said tongue in cheekly, like can AI is AI at a place where it can re replace clinicians, uh, replace clinicians. And from that answer, you know, it's a no, right? I think it can replace some apps. Like there's, a, there's several things that we that can be automated. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think the, the age old saying is that, you know, AI is not going to replace clinicians, but clinicians who use AI will replace those that don't. And I think, so one example I like, for instance, is when you think about insulin pumps, for example, we now have, you know, a first entirely closed loop system where we have a CGM and an insulin pump that can monitor someone's blood sugar and it administer the right amount of insulin based on that. And now that is machine controlled, correct? And so... Before we, it, I mean, it took us a long time to get to that place where we could completely automate that process. But as we continue to apply AI to other areas, we are going to start, I think, automating more and more types of those kind of decision algorithms. Even you know, medication dosing, for instance, will we will get to the point where we're where we are comfortable enough and we've studied it enough that we're able to automated, but that doesn't take out the role of the clinician there. It just really changes their role and how they, they interact. And now they have the ability to, to stand back and make sort of a different level of decisions around that. And, and now instead of focusing so much on minute dosing of insulin, now you can look at um, really helping patients with other looking at um, patients, I think, from the human side aspect. And then you can also look at like, how do you also troubleshoot and put guardrails around these kind of devices and educate patients, other clinicians around like, when could it go wrong? Like, how, how would you know if it, if it goes wrong? And like, how do you troubleshoot? And it's gonna be a whole new world, I think, of how we have to interact and interface with algorithms. It's going to be, you know, it's very different from you know, current practice where most things in practice are really, right now it's really guideline based, right? But we're moving into more data-driven decisions and more algorithm de decisions. So it's going to require a different type of clinical decision-making process and evidence-based medicine evaluations. Yeah. And I mean, I wrote about this. I wrote about how I would replace myself with a robot and I was <laughs> doing the same thing. Like I was like, yeah, you can automate all these things. Like I, I joke with people, like I've talked to a lot of pharmacists that love talking to their patients, but I've never spoken to one that's like, oh my God, I love dispensing meds. You know, like you can automate those kind of things. And that frees us up to do the more human centered things, like talking to our patients, troubleshooting their things and like really being there for them. And like really empathizing with them rather than, oh my God, I got to go to the next patient. We're already 60 minutes behind or man, we're, we have like a queue of a hundred scripts. Like we need to really get going. And that's where I'm excited about AI is really like, quote unquote, the boring stuff, like automate all the boring stuff that we don't want to uh -huh. do, which are very like A and B, like black and white, right? There's no like real gray area with a lot of that stuff. And then from there, leave the gray area to us and we can take care of that part. Exactly. Allow room for relationship building and patient education and counseling and, and developing those, yeah, therapeutic relationships, which, you know, there's usually not 
time for that in, in today's world most of the time. But I, I completely agree. I am all for us being able to start automating a lot of the dispensing aspects uh, of medication. So you're saying you don't love dispensing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm kidding, I'm I'm saying the, the, the data is good enough. That's why she works at a startup. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But no, I mean, I think, I mean, that's, that's what I tell people is like, yeah, I love AI, but you know, there's, there's a point where AI is good. And then, then, and you know, we've mentioned a lot of things, data, all these things. But then the other thing that comes to comes into play with AI that a lot of people don't talk about is liability. So like you have an AI model, who's liable for that model? Are we, are, is the clinician still liable or is the company still liable? That's a question that still hasn't been answered yet. Exactly. I was like, I don't think I can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, but it's a really important question, right? Like, so if you're dealing with a high risk environment and the it's going based on the algorithm and you don't control that algorithm and you have a bad outcome, who who is responsible for it? And I think that's a very important question that we need to ask ourselves. And that's another thing that I think is really overlooked in this whole, like, by companies that are, that are kind of going down this route. I think for sure the right governance needs to be put into place depending on, um, well, depending on the sector and as, like guardrails, especially for healthcare is gonna be really important. Um, as part of our research, Whitley and I were doing a look into some of the regulatory aspects of this, but this was a while back and this just prompts me to think about whether we should update that. But again, like every country is tackling it differently. Some have not yet thought about it perhaps some are like more forward thinking and really thinking ahead um but definitely the right governance structure is going to support this ensuring that as whitley mentioned earlier like you know people are retesting they're updating and everything because things are constantly evolving so what cadence of update is that is a cadence that we're all comfortable with and that's going to be totally dependent on the context with which these algorithms are at play and so I think we're still far from getting standardization of these governance structures across the board. And I, I don't know what that looks like. Yeah, no, for sure. And then, you know, as much as people might not realize that we all really do like AI, <laughs> we've been talking about uh, what it can't do, but like, maybe let's talk about like, you know, you kind of mentioned it, like where you guys see it, but like, where do you see the future of AI moving? Um, you know, like what is, what, is, what is exciting you about AI right now in the future? Well, I mean, I think some of the exciting advances, I mean, just looking at the progress we're seeing with NLP and, you know, we haven't touched on chat GPT yet here. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity just for really basic administrative tools utilizing this to auto automate a lot of things. And so this is where we, again, we have to be careful because, you know, we, you know, these kind of tools are not necessarily meant to be, they're not meant to be, you know, factual per se, but like utilizing these tools to help automate patient summaries, for instance, or pull out the most relevant information. I mean, we're in a, you know, phase of just data overload at this point. I mean, think about how much information we're constantly gathering. I mean, you know, even in the EHR, we have a lot of data on patients, but just think about all the data that patients collect on themselves, like just patient generated data itself is, is huge. And the ability to interface with AI 
through natural language instead of, you know, through code, I think is going to be just make it a lot more accessible to, to everyone is to have that natural interface and the ability to summarize. Like if you could have a, an out, an out, you know, a model that would be able to take everything from a patient profile and summarize it into a succinct history, for instance, for a patient and aggregate all of that data at once and take just a huge burden off the human for like manually coming through and synthesizing things. Like I think those kind of tasks were very close to seeing realized and I think can make like a big, a big difference in just I think both paid, you know, both clinician workflow, but also potentially just improving health outcomes by helping make, you know, clinicians more efficient as well. For me, um, I don't work in the R&D space, but again, like I alluded to this earlier, but I think it's it's really interesting to see how leveraging AI can, it can improve micro tasks along the whole workflow and process of drug discovery. Like the statistic is that it takes like nine through 15 years, you know, for a drug to go from bench side to commercialization into the hands of patients you spend, I mean, companies spend billions of dollars and very, very few of them get it, get through to approval. And nowadays, you know, with more and more um, uncovering of rarer or less common diseases, I think it makes that success rate even harder. And with more complex biologics and development too, like it's just such a challenging path nowadays when it comes to R&D. And so just seeing where the efficiencies can be improved to help with that success rate so that we can continue innovating on like new medicines, I think will be really interesting. Um, you know, we talked about biases. We talked about diversity of data. I think what this whole new era has helped us uncover is also the need to have more diversity in clinical trials to ensure that the right population is represented. And so the next centuries of medicines are truly impactful for all populations, or, you know, we understand if it's only impactful in this population versus that population. And so just kind of seeing all of that unfold is going to, is, is really exciting for me, I think. Yeah, no, and I completely agree with you guys there. And I think that, I mean, you kind of touched on something like diversity of data, and we kind of touched on it before. And I don't think people really understand why that's so important. Um, because a lot of our decision making is done based on specific race, specific gender or whatever, right? Like, I was just reading something that women weren't really added to, uh, like, clinical trials until like, very recently, I can't remember the exact year. But if, if when people hear the year, they'll be like, Oh, my God, and then like, and I, and I tell people like, you know, I've gone through medicine my whole life. There's not a lot of studies about people that look like me right in there. Like, and we know now with pharmacogenomics coming out and all these yep. things coming out is we're going to need to start getting more data like this so we can actually use that stuff. And it's, I mean, it, that's also kind of, I think, helping out with the diversity of data. Cause now we're finding that, okay, this race or this person or whatever has different genes and it's going to interact differently. I know in oncology, it completely upended our treatment algorithms completely. We were using drugs for something that would have never been used before just based on the genes and stuff. Yeah. 
exactly but but yeah i mean and you kind of touched on nlp i'm really excited about nlp and um for people that don't know nlp stands for natural language processing and you kind of want to go into what it is exactly and then what chat we can also touch on chat tpt as well <laughs> okay, we didn't really give a, a preface or background around that um and also you know i think nlp is also a big area where there is a lot of introduction of bias sure and that is where we do need very diverse representation of data because you see very easily that there nlp learns from existing written text and humans usually wrote all of that existing text and humans can be very biased so any bias that exists in that text will then be encoded and perpetuated through the nlp algorithm and a lot of people are becoming you know cognizant of this and so i know openai who's um the creators of ChatGPT, have done a lot of work to Try to anticipate that potential bias and like actually you know build in countermeasures if, if you will because they've they've seen and so i mean i've looked at i've done different experiments where you'll ask different questions and you know tell like for instance ask ChatGPT, what are the most important questions that a patient should ask their pharmacist when starting a new medication and if you say that if you tell it that it's a male patient versus a female patient it will give you a different set of questions to ask and it'll ask to give you fewer questions if it's a male patient, <laughs> which, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, and right off the bat, you think, oh, that may not make that much, that big of a difference. But if you're utilizing this kind of algorithm to utilizing it as, you know, as a base for some kind of health literacy or patient advocacy program, and you now have, you're telling different patients, different questions to ask, they're learning different things and which could potentially have different downstream impacts on health outcomes. And so sometimes even those simple nuances can make a really big difference. There was, we didn't pause and actually say what NLP is. Um, so in, in natural language processing, at its core, you really start with a language model. And so a lot of these, like chat GPT, which, or, which is um, the latest version of the GPT models that AI, uh, that OpenAI has put out, it is a, in essence, it's a probabilistic word generator is a way to think about it. It learns how to predict the next word or set of words that it sequence. And it can do this so well, depending you know, on how you train them, that it can create text that appears indistinguishable from human text, but because there's so many words that are most commonly used together, it also can make it appear that it has learned knowledge. And this is where it gets really confusing for people because you think, oh, this, this giant language model actually knows all of these things. And it doesn't really know these things. It just knows that that set of words or phrases are commonly used together, which makes it appear that it's learned a lot of facts, for instance. But at the same time, if there are certain facts or knowledge that is not as well representative, like a lot of times medication information is not as well representative or well represented as medical um, information, then it has a higher chance of being inaccurate when you're asking 
or you know dealing with NLP use cases around that kind of subject domain. And I think it becomes really important. I mean, I think it's a really helpful exercise for everyone to do just to play around. But what I was going to say is it's almost really important what you prompt something like chat GPT, like how you ask the question again, will lead you. Yeah. So prompt engineering is something that people may or may not be hearing a lot about nowadays. It's really like in the future with a lot of these models, um, like, how do you ask the right questions? Um, and really just one change in the wording of that question can affect the answer that you're given to. And so that's something that we have to keep in mind. Yeah, no, 100%. I've asked the same question multiple different ways. You get a completely different answer. Um, also with like the, like Dolly and all these like ones that draw, you know, knowing how to prompt it, Saves you a lot of money, guys. So definitely look up, <laughs> definitely look into how to use proper prompts because otherwise you'll be wasting a lot of money on these things. Yeah, and I've I've listened to podcasts where you know people were talking about that in and of itself being an entirely entirely different like job category in the future, like mm-hmm. learning you know all of this. One hundred percent. I think that's going to be like something taught. Like I think people are going to be like in colleges, high school, whatever. But like you know, just somebody that's just how do you prompt an AI to get what you want? But in, then kind of goes back to the bias question, right? Are we then kind of directing it to a specific answer? Yeah. yeah, but then you also think too that different people are more likely to write prompts in a certain way, right? And so then you're also creating bias by not having more robust ability to answer, like to understand intent, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And because you can't really understand intent as well, your the answers are biased based on maybe what the underlying vocabulary is of the person that can that's putting in the prompt right and and that can also you know i think that is a can be a dangerous area for there to be bias especially if you're using this and anything that's like patient facing yeah yeah and yeah. no for sure um so one question that i have and well, we can maybe end in this one is so healthcare data, there's not a lot of it, right? And it's, that's one of the problems with using AI models is either it's too dirty, it's not, you know, whatever. It's just, there's just a lot of it and it's just not in these models, HIPAA reasons, whatever you want to call it. I was talking to somebody and they're like, hey, we can train an AI model on data that an AI model created. I have my own feelings about that. What are your guys' thought about that kind of practice? <laughs> there. I, I'm torn between it and in, the reason I say this is because it's very, you know, you, it's hard to create data that's, that's perfectly built for like whatever use case you're looking at it. And, and I've looked at some like synthetic data sets and it's sometimes, you know, there's some areas where maybe we did a really good job of making the data look realistic, but in other cases, you may have every patient with high cholesterol actually on a statin and they're all on the appropriate statin at the right dose, which is not realistic. It doesn't really, you know, happen in in real life. And I think it's, I don't know. I think it becomes just another layer of things that we then have to audit 
and validate. And if you are, I mean, the entire AI model is really in order to understand whether it's working or not, you have to understand like the data going into it and in order to understand the data coming out. And if you're training it on data that is potentially too clean or not representative of what it would see in real life, then you can't really translate accuracy and performance into another environment. You can't just suddenly start, you can't just deploy it in the real world and assume that what it learned was what you wanted it to learn and that it's, ac it's actually accurate or not. Yeah, like I was gonna say, like with the first layer, you don't exactly know what it's learning to create synthetic data in the first place. And then when you feed it into a second model, essentially you're making your black box even bigger. And, you know, the synthetic data, okay, sure, you know, maybe it's applicable to synthetic environment, but again, to Whitley's point, like, how are you, how confident are we in transitioning those conclusions to real life environments or other environments? Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of my stance on it too. Like, I understand why people are going down that route just because they want to go forward, but, um, I think that, you know, kind of what you mentioned, we're just making the problem bigger. We're creating more work on us. And then is, is really AI really helping us with the problem we're trying to solve? You know, could we just do it faster on our own? And healthcare is complicated. I don't think a lot of people realize that is, you know, we learned things in school. We were told, hey, you see this patient, they're going to be exactly like this. You get out and practice. None of that happens. You know, like everything is like. Uh, I don't know, maybe uh, that's, that's basically all of healthcare, right? And that's where our training comes in. And that's why it's important to have somebody who's trained making those decisions. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, maybe there's a, a place for synthetic data in other settings, like perhaps, like, I don't know, I, I can't think of an exact example, but, you know, maybe not in healthcare, maybe other areas, maybe we can, you know, test and try, but it's, it becomes really hard when it when we're talking about patient care too. I mean, I think one place potentially for utilizing this is just is potentially automating data labeling, right? So I mean, labeling data is very time intensive and you know requires a lot of man man hours, if you will. But you know, if we can use AI to help automate that and just use humans to kind of double check it on the you know on the back end, I think that's a way to to potentially increase the amount of labeled data that we have, which is critical for being able to train a lot of these models. Yeah, no, for sure. And and that kind of brings us to another point, like you need people with that baseline knowledge to know that that data is accurate, right? And kind of what you were mentioning is like, our jobs are gonna maybe, are gonna start changing. And that could be like the future job of pharmacist, doctor, whatever, is like, hey, you're looking at these data sets, making sure they're accurate. Yeah, and then I was just going to say uh, thank you, because I feel like that's really a take home message that we try to give as well to really ensure that they're talk a lot about diversity <laughs> in, in like the data pool. But I think just diversity in subject matter experts or people who are involved in the design and development of those AI models, like really ensuring that the right representation is at the table to guide that evolution. Yeah, and even with ChatGPT, right? 
uh, when it when it when you're asking it a medical question, sometimes it's wrong. And if you don't have that medical background, you're not going to know it's wrong. You're just going to if you take it as gospel, that's going to be not the best thing to do, right? So you're yeah, always and it will sound very accurate. Oh yeah, for sure. It's it you know it, it sounds really accurate to the point where you're like, yeah. oh maybe it is true. You're like second guessing yourself. <laughs> but um, I know we're running against time. But how what and I want to end it on this last question. What advice would you give? Would you have given yourself when you're coming out, like going into pharmacy school, coming out of it? I know a lot of students are coming out. Like, what advice would you give them, or what, uh, about what you know now, or what you would told yourself back then? I think there's always to to stay curious and and to always explore and just you know don't be afraid to reach out to people that are in areas you know that are that you're interested in you want to learn more about even if it doesn't seem directly you know, directly related to pharmacy per se, just, you know, reach out and make those, make those connections and learn about other areas of digital health and the health tech and the health tech space. Yeah. Talking about prompt engineering, I think for students, it's like learning to ask questions, <laughs> learning to ask, like never be afraid of asking questions. Like, like Whitley said, and, you know, find mentors or peers who have, you know, interesting paths to you and ask them and learn from them and see how it applies to you. No two career paths are going to be the same. So really it's about borrowing inspiration from someone else and seeing how it applies to you. Um, definitely read, like LinkedIn is a great source of reading, but just even like YouTube, Google. Um, and I would say if you're really wanting to learn about a topic, you know, like us, we learned by teaching in a way, we learned by creating content. And I feel like a lot of people are interested in the content creator economy these days. And I think it's a really brilliant way to just teach yourself as well. So play around with that too. If you're interested in the topic, try creating content for it. And that way you'll continue your learning. Yeah, no, definitely. I think those, that's great advice. And that kind of is a great segue into the next question. Where can, if they, people do have questions for you guys, what is the best way of reaching out to you guys? Um, definitely reach out to us through aicollective.co, or you can find us both on LinkedIn. Um, we're happy to hop on a call and chat about whatever it might be. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you guys for your time. Uh, this was amazing. Uh, I know people get a lot of value out of this, but yeah, thank you guys. Thank you so Thanks much for, for having, having us. us too. Yeah.